Thank you, Ann. And thank you, Leighton. Um, okay, so tonight what I want to do is I want to talk about God's grace as it applies to our relational and sexual brokenness, okay? Which, as I mentioned last week, applies really to every single one of us in this room in some way or another. Um, And I think that most of us here tonight would admit that we live with regrets, okay? A lot of us feel that sense of shame, that sense of failure, that sense of brokenness about our past. And when we look back about the things that we failed in, we, we think of those things with shame. We think of those things with a huge amount of regret. But one of the things that I want you to see tonight in our passage is that God's grace can cover your shame. Okay, And God's grace can transform you as a person. But one of the things I was thinking about this week is how so often when it comes to our past... Um, the things that we feel shame about, the things that we regret, what we want from God is a new past, right? We want God to erase all of these things and then help all the people that we hurt forget about all those things. But in Scripture, what God promises is that He is actually going to make us instead into new people, okay? And that's what we're going to see in this passage tonight. So as we consider this story about a woman who has a very broken past, what I want you to notice is how Jesus speaks to her. I want you to notice how Jesus interacts with her, how He treats her, how He relates to her in the midst of her shame. Okay, I want you to just take note of some of those things as we move along. Alright, so just to set the context a little bit here as we enter into this story. Jesus is teaching in the Jewish temple. Okay, And then all these religious leaders come up to Him with a plan that they have to try and wreck His ministry. They've got a plan that they want to use to try and trap Jesus. And you'll see why in just a minute. And really, this is supposed to be... In Jesus' public ministry, according to these religious leaders, this is supposed to be the downfall of Jesus. This is supposed to be the end of Jesus' ministry. But instead, something beautiful happens. Something gloriously unexpected happens. And I want you to notice what it is. Okay, So there are three things that I want you to notice from this passage. All right, And the first is this. This woman, she is exposed. Okay, look at starting in verse 2 with me here in John chapter 8. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law of Moses, commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. Okay, so this woman has been caught, right, in the act of adultery. And the text tells us, and we know, that she's unquestionably guilty, right? She was caught in the act, and the law commanded that she be stoned to death, okay? That's how serious marital fidelity was taken by God's people. There was no, uh, no sort of excuses at all. She was to be stoned to death, But what I want you to think about here is that the religious leaders really aren't, if you stop and think about it, concerned with marital fidelity, 
That's not the reason they bring this woman before Jesus, okay? What they're more concerned with is the ruin of Jesus. What they're trying to do is to trap Jesus, sort of, in between the demands of God's law and the promises of God's mercy. Okay, they're trying to trap Jesus to where he doesn't know what to do, thus being the downfall of Jesus. Well, how do we know this? Okay, it's easy. Where's the man? Right? It takes two, obviously. Okay, but the man is nowhere to be found. Just the woman, she is dragged here all alone by these religious leaders and she's put in front of all of these people in a way to make her feel shame over what she's done, okay? But the law prescribed that it should be both the man and the woman who were stoned. But again, the man is nowhere to be found, okay? I want to take a quick but I think important aside here because I think it's really relevant to this passage, and this passage in many ways leads us here, okay? Um, All too often, I was thinking about this earlier, how all too often in our day, men are treated more leniently when it comes to sexual sin than women, okay? For example, and I'm going to use a colorful word here, okay? I'm just going to admit that. If a woman sleeps around, she's called a whore. If a man sleeps around, he's high-fived by his buddies and called a hero. Okay, folks, something in our culture is horribly wrong here. This, in my opinion, is a double standard, and it's an evil one that we need to call attention to. Okay, I think we ought to be calling men to live up to their dignity and promises to stop congratulating themselves for disappearing and not leading when it matters most. In other words, we need to be calling men to be men, okay, to show up and to be men. Now, back to our story. Again, the man's nowhere to be found, right? This woman here has no one, and these religious leaders have dragged her out here to expose her shame publicly, to make her feel the burden, if you will, of her shame. All right. Now, I think that this woman's experience of being, um, being brought in front of these people and her shame to be seen publicly, this really does in many ways, I think, expose one of our deepest fears, and it's this. All of us are terrified. We are terrified of being exposed and publicly shamed. Okay? Think about it. Many of us here in this room tonight have experienced this, this shaming, if you will, in connection with religion, just like this woman. For some of you, the church has been a place where you've been made to feel all alone in your sin. It's the last place where you could be yourself. It's the last place where you could be open because of the shame that would come if others knew what happened in your bedroom last Saturday night, or the doubts about your faith that swirl around in your head constantly. And so as a result, you've avoided the church and the people of the church. But if that's where you are, what I want you to see tonight is that Jesus is not like these religious leaders. Okay, Jesus is different. He is not the one who brought this woman in front of all of these people to be publicly shamed for her sin. You've got to take note of that. Jesus is different. But in fact, her sin being exposed before Him becomes the best thing that's ever happened to her, ironically. 
I think this is so interesting. It's the beginning, actually, of a whole new life for her. We see in the text. So, please hear this. Letting Jesus see you as you are is the best thing that can happen to you. Being vulnerable with Jesus about who you really are is where true and real heart change begins. Okay, so what does this look like practically? What does that mean? Well, there's a word that a lot of us use as Christians, um, and it's the word confession. All right, And basically, confession means this. You're admitting to God what He already knows to be true about you. Okay, That's what confession is. It's trusting that it's better to be found out by God than to hide from God. It's better to be found out by God than to hide from God. Okay. Now, I don't know, uh, maybe some of y'all saw this, but um, last night I, I put a video up on my Instagram this morning of my youngest daughter, Kate, who's four. And last night we were sitting in the living room, and Kate, Kate just has a very... Um, lively personality and you just never know what she's going to say and she comes up to me and she grabs this little red table that we have in our living room and um and she says daddy where's your bible and i said i i have no idea it's probably at work and um she goes well i need a bible and i said okay what you know why do you need a bible and she goes because i want to preach And so she gets this table and she puts this table in front of the fireplace and she just goes on this monologue about all these things, some of which were beautiful, some of which was heresy. We'll deal with that later. But it was beautiful. And she said all this amazing stuff, but here was one of the things she said. And I love this. She said, you know when you sin... I can't believe I'm quoting my four-year-old. This is amazing. She says, you know when you sin... Well, God always forgives you, no matter what. When you tell Him the truth, it makes Him happy. And then she goes on to say, the reason it makes Him happy is because He loves you. Guys, that's not bad for a four-year-old, okay? If you disagree, don't tell me. Um, Alright, I want to read to you... Based on that, 1 John 1, 8-9, which Sam read earlier, it says this, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. See, here's the thing about that verse. You can insert any word into that verse as a substitute for the word sin to make it personal. For example, you could say, if we say we have no lust, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our lust, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. As another example, you could say, if we say we have no struggle with pornography, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our struggle with pornography, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Okay, here's the point. No matter what you put in the beginning of the verse, it doesn't change the promise at the end of the verse. See, regardless of what the sin is, the truth of the gospel is that God is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Okay? Now, the religious leaders in our story here, they don't know this at the time, but 
They brought this woman to the only place where sinners can be totally exposed in all of their brokenness, being completely vulnerable, yet still being safe. They don't know that. Alright? Well, look at what happens next. Okay, After she's exposed, secondly, you see in verses 7-9 through that she's defended. Look at it with me. And as they continued to ask Him, He stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more He bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with a woman standing before Him. Okay, now obviously we don't know what Jesus wrote in the sand here. People have been wondering about that for many, many years. We just don't know what Jesus wrote in the sand. But I do want you to notice His words because they're important. This is what He says. Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Then Jesus drops the mic, they drop their rocks, and they all walk away. Okay, it's really an amazing scene because here's what happens. Jesus is saying to this woman, He is saying to the religious leaders, and He is saying to us that sin completely levels us. Right? In other words, everyone is sexually broken. All of us, myself included, all of us are sexually broken. Okay, Jesus, don't miss this, Jesus doesn't single out prostitutes, porn addicts, those who struggle by being attracted to the same gender. Jesus puts everybody in the same boat and says every single person is sexually broken and every person needs the cleansing, healing power that only Jesus can give. That's what He's doing here. Okay, And notice that while everyone walks away, Jesus remains. And He remains as the only one who is worthy to judge her, to condemn her. But He doesn't. Now hit the pause button for a second. Maybe you're thinking, maybe you're sitting here as we're going through this story, you're thinking, wait a minute, okay, the law says that this woman should be stoned. She was caught in the act of adultery, okay? Jesus just lets her slide, right? He lets her get away with this sin. Maybe you're thinking... But that's not what happens. Alright, think about this. Just a few chapters later in the book of John, the religious leaders bring Jesus bound, if you will, as one who was caught, just like this woman. Jesus actually takes this woman's place on the cross. See, on the cross, Jesus is exposed. He is shamed publicly. He is mocked as a criminal just like this woman. On the cross, Jesus is left all alone with no one around Him to defend Him, just like this woman. On the cross, Jesus bears this woman's condemnation. Jesus bore your condemnation. See, that's the good news of Christianity. That's the gospel of Jesus for you. Jesus bore your condemnation. Jesus bore my condemnation on the cross. But I want you to note that God is not soft on sin. Okay? He takes it more seriously than we do, actually. And that's why the cross stands at the center of Christianity. 
Because it cost Jesus His own life to defend you. So no matter who you are, okay, whoever you are, no matter how alone you feel tonight, what you need to know is that you have a defender in Jesus. You have someone who is ready to free you from your guilt. You have someone who is ready to rescue you from your shame. Okay, Someone who is ready to protect you. Folks, John, the author of this passage, what he wants you to know is that Jesus not only defends you, Jesus not only makes you free, but Jesus actually changes you. And that's the third thing I want you to see from this passage. Okay, look at verses 10 through 11, where we'll see that she's changed. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Okay, so how do we know that this woman has changed? Well, what you see in verse 11 is that she refers to Him as Lord. Okay? What does that mean? Well, it's no longer... This story is no longer about somebody else's husband. It's no longer about her sexuality. It's no longer about just her reputation. She now belongs to Jesus. That's her identity. She has entrusted her life to Jesus and He is now the object of her worship, not her sexuality. Okay, Then Jesus says to her, Go, and from now on, sin no more. Now I want you to think about this with me for just a minute. Okay, What Jesus is saying here is that new obedience is possible for her. Now remember that for this woman, her life was wrecked. Right? She had a horrible reputation in the community. Her life was in shambles. But what Jesus says to her is, Go and sin no more. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm sure that there's many of you tonight who are cynical about your own ability and your own capacity to change. Right? I get cynical about that myself sometimes. But here's the reality, according to the Bible, if there's anyone who should be cynical, anyone in the universe who should be cynical about your capacity for change, it should be God. Because God knows the deepest, darkest places of your heart. Yet, He's not. He's not cynical about your ability to change. And just like this woman, what He does is He looks to you and He offers you a new obedience and He says, Go, and from now on, sin no more. That's hugely important. Okay, Jesus gives her back both her life and her dignity. John, our author, wants you to see that Jesus is not like the religious leaders. Jesus is altogether different. And, in, and different from the religious leaders, instead of trying to take life away from you, Jesus desires to give life back to you. He wants to give you the freedom and dignity that you were created to have. Listen to these words by uh, Scott Souls, who's a pastor of a church in Nashville. You bring your broken history and regrets Jesus brings bread and wine. His grace makes everything new. I love that. 
Folks, Jesus came to build a church. Jesus came to build a church for the relationally and sexually broken. Jesus came to build a church for sinners, for people like you and me. Jesus came to build a church for hope, for healing, and for change. But what you can't forget about the Gospel, about the good news of Jesus, is that Jesus has promised to meet your failures with His forgiveness, to meet your guilt with His mercy, to meet your sin with His salvation, to meet your shame with His grace. See, folks, the grace of God, and we sing about this all the time, the grace of God is greater than all of your sin. Jesus can and wants to heal you. He is your defender. He is your friend. He's not out to condemn you and to publicly bring shame on you. He's not out to take life from you. He's actually desiring to give life back to you. New obedience is possible for all of us, just like it was for this woman. Consider naming Jesus as your Lord tonight, just like this woman did. Let's pray. Father, I pray that You would guard us against being cynical about the ways that You desire to work in our hearts and in our lives. I pray that You would guard us against thinking that we are beyond hope, that we are beyond being changed. And God, I pray that You would press deeply into our hearts the truth and the reality that new obedience is possible for us and that Jesus came not to condemn but to give back life and dignity in the places where it's been robbed from us. God, would You press the truths of this passage down deeply into our souls, we pray. Amen.